morning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Last time we were together, we did a bit of an overview of the last major section in 2 Thessalonians. That would be chapters 3 verses 6 through 15. We, we did just kind of an overview and today I want to look a bit more closely at this section as we just continue walking through this epistle. If you ask me when we'll be finished, I honestly have no earthly clue. We will be finished with it sometime. And if the Lord comes before we finish, we'll just continue this in, in glory. Well, I want to look a little bit more closely at this section in which Paul gives some very serious instruction. In fact, you're going to find in this section that he gives very serious commands. He is actually commanding the church at Thessalonica in regards to their view of and their practice of work. Now last time we said that there were three primary factors that played into their view of work. There was a, the personal factor, the societal factor, and the theological factor. What played into their view of work personally was the fact that something we can all understand, there's just an inbuilt tendency towards laziness in all of us. There's an inbuilt factor, there's an inbuilt tendency in all of us to be lazy, to pursue leisure. There was also the societal factor, and that came in the, result, in the form of the Greco-Roman culture. You see, the Greco-Roman view of work in that society was that work was actually despised. It was something that was reserved only for the slave community. And then added to all of that, and perhaps more pressing for the church in Thessalonica, was the theological factor. In all likelihood, the Thessalonians were so consumed with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ that they were actually shirking their responsibilities when it came to work. And this fit nicely with the, the, the normal personal tendency towards leisure and laziness and the societal disdain for work in that culture anyway. So the fact that false teachers had taught that the day of the Lord was already upon them, well, that, that, that the day of the Lord, in fact, had already passed, as we learn in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, served to help them think that their work actually didn't matter. That their work was actually inconsequential in the large scheme of things. And Paul had been talking about this issue of work. He actually talked about it in his first letter, if you remember Back in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, he was reminding them how, how he taught them to live a life that is well-pleasing to, to the Lord. And one of the issues he brought up was the issue of work. He told them in chapter 4, verse 11, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. And then he says this, to work with your own hands as we instructed you. Now, apparently, the Thessalonians did not follow that instruction because he writes 2nd Thessalonians perhaps a matter of several weeks later if not maybe maybe a few months later and and we find that they had not taken his call to work seriously and now something happens in these Thessalonian epistles that we haven't seen before Paul's tone changes and it doesn't change slightly it changes big time in his first epistle, he was encouraging. He was exhorting. We urge you, brothers, he said. Now in the second epistle, he moves to the language of command. 
We command you, brothers. That word command is, is, is an important word in our text today. Chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 15. He's going to use that word three different times just in between verses 6 and 12. And what I want you to see is that Paul is making a big deal. He is making a big deal of this. Now I want to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 through 15, and we'll see that. Follow along as I read. And, and make note of the word command. Now we command you, brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were, neither, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but, we toiled, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now you see here that the Apostle Paul is making a big deal. He's making a big deal of the issue of work. And my question is why? Why does he keep bringing this up? Of all of the big issue things that Paul could be concerned about in uh, Thessalonica, he's concerned about work. I mean, remember some of the things that they were dealing with. The persecution, the false teaching, the errant eschatology. Paul dealt with those things, but he keeps coming back to this issue, this practical issue of work. Why? Because what was happening was that some were actually refusing to work and that was actually causing a problem in the church. They were actually becoming divisive. Can you imagine the toll that it would take on our church if all of a sudden many people, let's say 20, 30, 40% of the people here at the church just decided that they were not going to work anymore and that they would need to be supported by others. What kind of toll would that take? Not only economically, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually would that take on our church. We tried to address that a few weeks ago when we looked at the sin of socialism. But today, I would like us to notice that not only was this creating division within the church, but it was actually becoming a distraction for the gospel. And I think that's what it really came down to. In 1 Thessalonians 4.12, Paul mentioned that the, one of the reasons that we work with our hands is so that we can have a positive impact on those who are outside. I find it interesting, John Calvin said this, everything bad the ungodly can seize hold of in our life, everything bad that the ungodly can seize hold of in our life is twisted maliciously against Christ and His teaching. The result is that by our fault, God's sacred name is exposed to insult. Now listen, 
The more closely we see ourselves being watched by our enemies, the more intent we should be to avoid their slanders so that their ill will strengthens us in the desire to do well. In other words, what Paul is saying is the fact that you are unwilling, you're able, but unwilling to go to work is actually serving to be a distraction for the gospel. It's serving to to serve as an insult against your God. And what the Apostle Paul wants to do is he wants to confront this issue in Thessalonica. And in doing so, he emphasizes the place that a Christian work ethic has in our world today. He emphasizes how a Christian ought to view work. Now, I want to say something before we go on about what is going on in our world. Because you might wonder why in the world we would address a text like this today when everything in our world seems to be falling apart. A sermon about work when things are changing moment by moment. In many ways we might say that these are unprecedented times. And yet, I want to remind you that these are times. <laughs> there have all, there's always been an ebb and flow throughout history. There have always been times throughout history when evil men and evil women and their wicked plans and sinister schemes raise their ugly heads. There have always been fearful things, friends. There have always been corrupt people. There have always been threatening circumstances. There have always been hell-bent, hell-bent, hell-bent purposes. But it's in precisely those kind of times when if you read your Bible correctly, it's in those times when God's people actually stand. Like Daniel in Persia, after the law was signed, he kept praying. Like Elijah in the wilderness, finding God's unexpected provision. Like Caleb and Joshua and Kadesh Barnea, we have to boldly uh, trust the power and promise of God and encourage others to do so. Like Gideon, in a day and age when men did only what was right in their own eyes, we ought to go forward clothed in the strength of the Lord and obey Him even in our weakness. That's what Christians do. There have always been hard times. There have always been wicked people. And I find that the church, from time to time, we get a pity party on and think that there's something new, something different, something strange. Think it not strange, brothers and sisters, when you endure various trials. Think it not strange. Our world, for sure, is hurtling toward the end. But as it does, we must maintain a biblical perspective on things. When pressed, think about this, when pressed on the issues of the timing of His coming, the Lord Jesus Christ gave three very vital instructions. This is not my sermon today. It's only part of it. But in Matthew chapter 24, He gave three very vital instructions. He was being pressed. When are you coming? When will be the signs of your coming? What will those be? And He said three, 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 three things. Number one, He said, first of all, do not be led astray. That's the first thing he wants you. Don't be led astray. He told us that in Matthew 24, 5. In these days, it's imperative that you not be led astray. That is, to get your minds off of Christ. I appreciated that song Corey played. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Don't be led astray. 
The second thing he said is, do not be alarmed. Matthew 24, 6. Don't be alarmed. Do not think that something strange is happening. Do not think that somehow God is not in control. Don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. And then he says in verse 13, do not abandon the faith. Don't turn tail and run. Don't jump ship. Don't abandon faith. I love what James Boyce said. He said, Jesus Christ is God. Amen? Jesus Christ is God. He is Lord of history. He is the God of detailed circumstances. Nothing has ever happened that has not flowed in the channel that God has dug for it. There have never been any events that have flamed up in spite of God to leave him astonished or confused. The sin of man has reduced the world to an arena of passion and fury. Men tear at each other's throats. Yet in the midst of history of which Jesus Christ is Lord, each individual who believed in him as the Savior will know the power of his resurrection and will learn that events, listen, however terrible, cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There, there are many things, friends, on our minds these days. But what must be chief in our minds is the glory of our great God. And this is especially true when it comes to the issue of our witness for the gospel. Sinclair Ferguson said, the main business of our lives is not to interpret the signs of the times, but to bring the gospel to a needy world. Amen? The greatest need in our days not to interpret the, the signs of the time, but to bring the gospel to a needy world. And getting back to Thessalonica, that was exactly what was at issue there. 2 Thessalonians 4, 12, uh, 3.12 tells us what was going on. There were people in the church refusing to work in order to earn their own living. This is a vocational issue. They were unwilling to go to work to earn their living. Instead, they had become busybodies. And Paul commands them to go to work. And this is not just a suggestion, as I said. It's an absolute command. Three times, Paul is very exercised about this. He is very exercised in a day and age where people were questioning, are we in the end? Has the end passed us? When's Christ going to come? All these kind of questions. Paul zeroes in on the issue of work and becomes very exercised about it. Very interesting to me. I might say that it is essential that we in these days develop a biblical view of work. We must develop a Christian work ethic. It is perhaps more imperative now than ever. And in 2 Thessalonians 3 verses 6 through 15, we're going to find three main features that are going to help us to understand the importance of a Christian work ethic. First of all, we'll see there that there is a detailed description. We'll see these, this detailed description primarily about those who refuse to work. Next, we'll see a demanded discipline. How do you deal with those in the church who refuse to work? And then finally, we'll see a desired duty. Let's look first of all at this detailed description. I just want to point out to you how Paul describes those who refuse to work. Do you notice in verse 6, he says, keep away from any brother. Notice how he describes it as who is walking in idleness. 
that word idleness refers to that which is disorderly. That's, that's the way he describes them. They are disorderly. They are walking in darkness. It refers to, to one who is out of line. You see, listen. God has created work for you. And He's created you for work. When one is able to work, but refuses to do so, he is out of line with God's intention for creation. And we talked about this a little bit last time, two weeks ago. Work is not what gives us our identity. That's the error of Marxism. That's the error of, com error of communism, socialism. Work is not what gives us our identity. God is. We are created in the image of God. We are image bearers of the Almighty God. Our Creator has assigned work as a means by which we may display His image in our lives. It's through work that God has ordained that we can show forth the distinct image that He has stamped on every part of our very being. So I mean to tell you that there is no work that is mundane. Don't think that your work is mundane, that your work in the home is, is mundane, that your work in the workplace is, is mundane or ordinary. In fact, it is a testament to our createdness. Your work is actually a testament to your createdness, to the fact that you have a creator. By, by, uh, by the way, that's exactly the reason that the godless world wants to destroy work. A godless world, it will always be the purpose of a godless world to take away work. Because they want to take away that testament to the image of God. And we need to have a biblical view of work. We must understand that this is about showing forth the image of God that is stamped on our being. And he, he says, he describes those who refuse to work as being disorderly, as being out of line with God's plan. Not only disorderly, but he says they are deadbeats. Verse 11. Look at this. Paul uses a word play here. He says, they walk in idleness. Again, same word as back in verse 6. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. He takes this description a step further. There's this play on words. Since they had nothing productive with which to occupy their time, he says they occupy their time with wasteful wandering. That's how he describes those who are able but refuse to work. They become loud-mouthed freeloaders who have an opinion about everything. Maybe they were like so many chicken littles going around cackling about the sky falling. They were being loud. I mean, that probably is the case. He tells them to work quietly. <laughs> Did they walk around giving their opinion about the end times and telling others that you ought to pay me to give you my opinion about the end times? They were just mooching off of society, giving nothing of any value in return. One, one man wrote, we must not meddle in affairs to which we are not assigned. Instead, let's do our work for God the way that He designed. They became meddlers, busybodies, loafers, deadbeats. That's what he's, Paul is, and, and that, that's a strong, you say, well, a deadbeat, that's a strong word. It's a strong word that he uses here. He is very exercised about this. They're disorderly, they're deadbeats, and then he says they're disobedient. 
If you look in verse 6, he says that, that they're not walking in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. And then in verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, the tradition that he refers to in verse 6 is simply a reference to, to the oral word, the teaching that had been both verbally taught, not to mention the example that they had left for them. He mentions that example. You know how we lived among you. You saw us living this out, even though we had every right to be provided for. We did not hold to that right. And he says, you know what? You've become disobedient to what we have taught. You are being disobedient to the, to the apostolic word. You've heard this, the sayings before. Idle hands, what? Of the devil's workshop. I like what Derek Thomas said. He said this, when you deviate from the path that God intends for you, it's always true that the devil will find mischief for you to do. You, you become disobedient to that which God has ordained for you and immediately the devil will slip in. He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There is very clearly this detailed description but then I want, you to show, I want you to see this demanded discipline. He, he wants them to understand. He wants them to know how they're to deal with this. The church is actually to play a role. They're not to sort of ignore this and act like it's not important or act like it's not there. He actually calls them for, to, to, to bring discipline, to bring training, to bring teaching. And he says this discipline is to come into three areas. There are three shades of this discipline. First of all, in verse 6, he says, let them be avoided. Wow. Look at that. Verse 6. Do you see it? Avoid. He says, in the name of Christ, keep away from any brother who is walking on in idols. This, again, is a very serious issue. So much so that Paul calls them to withhold fellowship from them. They are to be disfellowshipped. Now listen. Side note, at the very least, this is a reason for having a church role. Church members on the church role, you need to know who is to be fellowshipped, in fellowship, and who is to not be in fellowship. I think this most likely was to be played out when the church came together for meals and such. Basically, he's saying no longer admit them. I don't think this is referring to the step of church discipline of the church discipline process but rather to withholding the daily fellowship of the church marking them out as disorderly disobedient deadbeats they all knew the teaching there was no doubt about that not only did they have the teaching but they had the apostolic uh, example and they were ignoring it so he says don't feed them wow this is really serious doesn't this strike us kind of hard in our entitlement society? Doesn't it? Don't feed them? Ah, ouch. We've all been conditioned in a welfare state, haven't we? Perhaps the, that, the welfare state, by the way, is perhaps singularly responsible for the weakening of the family unit, the increase of divorce, out-of-wedlock childbirth, homelessness, crime, immorality, suicide, and just a general sense of despair in our society. 
we've tried to bring a gospel in the midst of that. It's called the social gospel. It goes right along with socialism. I, I remembered a, a, a saying by Vance Havner. He said this, if they had a social gospel in the days of the prodigal son, somebody would have given him a bed and a sandwich and he never would have gone home. Listen, kids, this should be something that your, your parents teach you. If your parents really love you, they will teach you this. What? They will teach you that if you don't work, you do not eat. If your parents love you, that's what they'll tell you. If you don't use your God-given identity and contribute in some way within the home, then you shouldn't eat. Now, parents, don't make this a punishment, right? Make this a cause for rejoicing. Children who keep a tidy room, they steward their toys well, maybe keep up with some daily list of chores around the home. They need to be taught that that's something laudable and praiseworthy, not because they've done a great thing, but because you just saw the image of the Almighty on them. It's telling them something about the, their relationship with the Creator and you praise them. Praise the Lord. You put those toys away, Johnny. Do you know that that says something about your Creator? God has given you an environment over which you are to have dominion and it's dominion over those Legos. And they don't go underneath my feet. <laughs> praise the Lord. Amen. And so you teach them about the value of work and, and don't make it a punishment. Make it something to rejoice in. Get back to this. He says, let those who refuse to work, let them be avoided. Don't, don't admit them to the church meals. If, if they don't work, they won't eat. All right? Now, for some of you, that might not be a problem. You say, well, I don't want to be part of the, you know, the hog mall dinner at church. Well, find something you do like, and we'll make that next time, right? And let them be avoided. Not only let them be avoided, but let them be ashamed. Verse 14, that they may be ashamed. This all really rubs against us, doesn't it? We shouldn't make people feel shame. The church as a whole is supposed to take note of that person. That means to mark them out. It actually means, put, it's like put a sign on them. I don't think literally put a sticky note in the back of their back, you know, refuses to work or something like that. But, but there's a sense that this person is to know that the reason that fellowship has been withheld from them is because of their indolence. Why? So that they will come to some serious soul searching and heart reflection. That's what the word ashamed means. It means to, to turn in on oneself. That they may turn in and be like, they might take some inventory. What's going on here? Why, why has this happened? This would lead them to become ashamed of the way that they're living and then to repent. That's what true believers do. That's why, again, why we have a church role so that we can appropriately discipline members who are out of line. And that's something that all true believers long for because that's part of God's grace for keeping you and molding you and taking you from here to the image of Christ for which we're all in Christ. If, if you're in Christ, you are predestined. You see, let them be ashamed. Let them, let them have some time to look in inward in their heart. Let them be avoided. Let them be ashamed. 
And then verse 15, let them be admonished. Do not regard him. Uh, he says in verse. Uh, uh, let me go back up here. I have, I have it wrong in my. Verse 10. Uh, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and earn their own living. As for you brothers, do not grow weary and well-doing. If anyone does not obey, blah, 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 take note and have nothing to do with him. Where is that? I wrote it down here in my... I'm telling you, it was there this morning. Hmm? Oh, yeah, there it is. These glasses are worthless. <laughs> Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. There's the word, warn. Admonishment. Now, I want to say finally, you know, I don't think that these are chronological steps we take. I think this is something that, that they are to do all at once and continually. They are to be duly warned. That word warned is to be admonished or to be, we might say, counseled. It's an instructive warning. It's speaking to the mind. Have you ever heard of the word nuthetic counseling? Nuthetic biblical counseling? This is not therapy. He's not saying put them in therapy. It's a confrontation with biblical truth. There are those who are appointed for this kind of ministry in the church. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'll try these glasses again, see if they work this time. Verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. There are those who labor among you and are over you. And one of the things they do is to admonish you. This is verse 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Look over at Titus, a few books back. Titus chapter 3, verse 10. Paul is giving instruction here to Titus as a leader in the church there in Crete. And in Titus 3.10, he says, As for a person who stirs up division after, here's our word, warning him once and then twice have nothing to do with him. They are to be admonished. They are to be, that, that word uh, that from which we get the, the word nuthetic, nuthetic counseling, means to bring the truth to bear on someone's mind. To put the truth of the word before their mind. There's an admonishment that takes place regularly in the church, especially when it comes to the issue of work, and we need to use care and make sure that we do not yield ground to the enemy such that work is no longer seen as something that displays the brilliance of God's image in us. They are to be admonished. That is a discipline that is demanded. And then let me finish back in 2 Thessalonians 3 by the desired duty. There's a word here about a desired duty, both for those who are sinning and for those who are not sinning. Verse 12. Such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. 
There's a desired duty regarding work. This is the third use of the command with all the seriousness of coming from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Do your work quietly. Earn your own living. He, he's saying, settle down. Set yourselves to working. That's the desired command. The word quietly refers to an inward settleness, an, an inward peace. Perhaps they were given to being worked up over eschatological concerns. And he says, just settle down and work. What's the most spiritual thing you can do in these days? Well, friends, listen. The most spiritual thing you can do, the most biblical thing you can do is to put in an honest day's work. Don't get all agitated over things. There's plenty of things to be agitated about. Just do your work and God will do His. Amen? There's a desired duty regarding work and then there's a desired duty regarding weariness. Verse 13. As for you brothers, this is those who are not sinning. Do not grow weary in doing good. The duty for those who are not sinning is to keep on keeping on, to continue, to persevere. Don't, what he's saying to them is, do not let the disobedience of others keep you from obeying what the Lord has called you to. You see, the danger is that you could become weary or worn out or exhausted generally in honest, good labor. Many of us have before. That's a fact. When your honest work is accompanied by the misdeeds of the disorderly, disobedient deadbeats, it's easy for you to get discouraged and overwhelmed and think that your honest work is worthless, isn't it? But this morning, you have notice served to you that your work is not in vain. So don't give up. Don't get tired. Don't get tired of it and throw in the towel and quit because other people are taking advantage of the system. You could get weary in caring for the poor. For those who are generally in need. This instruction, you have to understand, does not diminish the need for the validity of caring for those who are genuinely in need. Don't get tired of doing what you're called to do. Because in the end, God is going to work all things together for His good, for His glory, and for your good. Paul said it this way in Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. You think that your daily grind is worthless, and God says this is eternally valuable. Be refreshed, brothers and sisters. Your labor of love is not in vain. Whatever season of life you're in, because some of you are saying, well, maybe I'm not at work yet, or maybe my work is in the home, or maybe I've reached that, se that season in life where I'm able to, to what we call retire. But you see, we never stop working. There's always a season in our lives of work, whatever that may look like. You see these three main features here in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15. A detailed description, a demanded discipline, and a desired duty. And what Paul wants us to understand is how important it is that we develop a Christian work ethic. 
One of the greatest ways, my friends, that you can speak of the glory of God and testify of His greatness is to work in such a way that it says more about your God than it does about you. What, what would that work look like? Here's a question. If, if you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that tomorrow at 5.30, precisely 5.30 p.m., that Jesus Christ was going to return. Perhaps the greatest thing you could do tomorrow morning is to get up and go to work. Wow. Work is that important. Imagine how your day-to-day work would change if you did it as unto the Lord. If you're driving that truck as if Jesus were coming in six hours. If you're teaching that class as if Christ were coming. If you're changing those diapers as if Christ were coming. What kind of work would that be? It would be humble work, I think. We just set ourselves daily going about, humbly being what God has called us to be, doing what God has called us to do. And it doesn't seem real spiritual because I'm not a missionary, I'm not a full-time vocational, blah, 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 blah. But I am a Christian. Humbly working. It would look like humble work. It would look like holy work. I mean, you would be doing it as if you were doing it as unto the Lord at that very second. Arranging those shelves just so. Right? Packing that order just right. And it would be a heavenward work. A a humble work, a holy work, and a heavenward work. A work in which you're just... You're not just biding time, but you're laying up treasures in heaven. Parents, are are we teaching our children how to work? Are we? Are we teaching them why? Many, Many are learning to become social parasites and unproductive members of society. The greatest trade is video gaming. Apply this to our lives. Kids, you might not have a nine to five job that you have to go and punch a clock. But do you see whatever you set your hand to, if it's your schoolwork and you don't like it, I I dislike math. That's it's amen, it's terrible. Now don't you tell your your parents that I said that. Just keep that between you and me. But you sit down to do your math and you take dominion over that math and you do it as unto the Lord. Right? Whatever that work is, you, you take care of your room at home and you, 
you make your bed, not just because you can be a good little kid, but because God stamped his image on you. And when God created and, and, and God created things and he made them good and, and you make your bed just right and you say that I did that because I'm created by God to bring order out of chaos. Right? Learn the value of work and why you do this. And it's not easy. No, it's not easy. But you keep plugging away and plugging away. You, sometimes, kids, you grow weary in doing good, don't you? You grow weary in your schoolwork. But remember this verse. Keep remembering right at the, the top of your papers of your schoolwork. First, or Second Thessalonians 3.13. Do not grow weary in doing good. Let's teach our kids these things. What we do in these days, friends, when, when things are upside down and topsy-turvy and there are wars and rumors of wars and there are corrupt politicians and evil policies and inept spineless leaders and spiritual danger and economic peril and uncertainty, what do we do in these things? Well, I guess what I want to say to you is not much changes for the true Christian. Not much changes. I heard a story and I thought it was a, an apt illustration of what I mean that you just keep on doing what you're doing in spite of circumstances. In 1979, uh, an unbelieving drunkard named Vladimir Bohav barged into a Baptist church prayer meeting in Russia. And he shouted that he was going to destroy all of them as religious fanatics. Well, you can imagine how surprised he was when one pretty young lady voiced to everyone else that they should just keep praying. In fact, that they should surround him and begin praying. And so they just kept doing what they had been called to do. Vladimir said, the next thing I know, I was the center of a prayer circle. I had never before known such love. The believers invited him back the next week. And for two months, Vladimir returned. He received Christ. Married that young lady who suggested that they would pray for him. Yeah, amen. And became pastor of the Baptist church in Lepetsk. Vladimir testified that it was their love that won him to Christ. What do you do when something comes into your world, someone comes into your world and threatens to destroy your world. As a Christian, you keep doing what you're doing in obedience to the King. So tomorrow, when you get up for work, or I think about those moms who are here, you know, you never get up for work, you're just always there. You set about your work in a different way as a servant of Christ. And one day, one day, someday, we stand before our King and He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Amen. Let's pray.